If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Netflix's hit drama The Crown, created by Peter Morgan, has come to a close after six seasons and 60 episodes, having dramatised the Windsor dynasty from the mid-20th century to the early years of the new millennium. It's faced some controversy for its portrayals of living royals and storytelling choices, while its mass appeal has seen it become one of the flagship historical dramas of the decade. Eleanor Evans spoke to Annie Salzberger, head of research for the show, to hear more about The Crown's approach to the real history it shows on screen. So can we start by you introducing our listeners to your role on The Crown, please? So I'm the head of research for The Crown. That role did not start off as in existence in series one. It was a very small team of us working with Peter at the start. Um, so I was the only full-time researcher of about five of us. And what we do every season is, you know, plot out long timelines that encompass domestic events, international events in the political sphere, all of our character uh, tracking. So... Not only where are they on which days, but anything that gives us a kind of insight into their emotional states in, the, in those years and, and what's actually happening in their private lives. And then from there, we, you know, we build out this huge master timeline and then we start to pick the events that we feel 
deserve to be investigated, interrogated, you know, and, and highlighted. And something we've always re- really done from the start is we try to look at how we can match moments. So just thinking about past series, but, you know, Billy Graham and um, the Knots, the Windsor Papers, for example. So those happened a couple years apart, but by putting them together, we realized we had this opportunity to give her a very interesting conduit through which to talk about, like, her Christianity, her struggle to forgive, which is a basic tenet of her faith, with something as personal as the very shaming and damning reports of her uncle coming out into the public. So we really just crafted these episodes. I mean, the first year was just in Peter's kitchen. <laughs> and then and then as the show, as we went into production and I had to be on set as well, working with the directors and the actors, we started to expand the team and buy series three. And we realized it was actually going to be successful long term. <laughs> I just said, let me train up some people you know, let's build this team properly so that we can assist not just you in the script process, uh, using Peter, but make sure that our research fans out through the whole production so that we manage, we do all the graphics, a lot of the graphics writing. So any newspapers you see that needed to be changed, that's that's our writing. We help all the actors get into their characters. We work with directors because directors might approach a script and say, I love this one moment. I'd love to know more about it because I think I'm going to try to draw it out. So um, they all come at it from different angles. So by building the team out, we were able to manage production requests and as well as Peter's continuing writing. I, I think one thing people don't quite realize is our department never breaks because Peter is writing the next season whilst he's filming the previous. So this was the first year, actually, where we didn't have another season to write at the same time as filming the season before it, which just meant we actually got to do deeper dives, which was great. That's fantastic insight into how you're working and how the scope of your role has changed over the last 10 years or so. Um, I wonder if you can give us a, a bit of information on you as as a, a person with a, a historian's background and your team as well. How you balance this line between obviously wanting to present historically accurate figures and, and facts, but then also balancing the need for storytelling as well. Can you talk a little about that tension? Absolutely, yeah. So I, uh, just to answer your first question, I came from an art history background, so that was my BA, my master's. And um, I loved research, and I loved writing, but I didn't really, uh, I couldn't see myself doing academic theoretical writing for the rest of my life. So I wanted to get into a field where the research kind of came alive in a different way, and could be used to illuminate something else. Uh, it didn't need to be necessarily adhered to, but it could be a starting point. So that's how I ended up getting into film and television. And usually it's a lone wolf job. And this time round, because Peter relies so much on research and he respects it so much, we were really able to make that a priority in his work. So the way that we approach the storytelling is that the research guides us. Peter's not going to write an episode without knowing what it's rooted in, what the real story is. But if he sees, for example, we, you know, we, as I say, with the Billy Graham and and the Nazi papers, we concertina time a bit. We brought those two events together, even though they're actually two years apart. And we've done that before as well with with many of our episodes, just to to be able to highlight themes that are great in terms of world events, but also characters. And 
For us, I think every every decision that is made on when we deviate from history is, are we still telling, are we still being honest about these people? If we do something that we believe corrupts the, the character that we understand through the research, it wouldn't, we simply wouldn't continue on with it. So I think Peter feels very strongly rooted in that research, but is always looking at making a very clear story arc. That's one thing. So often you really do have to fill it to the history a bit for Clarity's purpose. And also just a narrative structure. So, you know, for example, we moved some of Charles's supposed discussions about abdication or a regency from the late 80s into the 90s because, into the early 90s, because even though we know his first discussions at number 10 started in the late 80s under Thatcher, for us, series four was really about the marriage, and that was the, the fundamental character arc that we wanted to tell for Diana and Charles. Whereas series five, the research was showing us series five was much more about position. I want to be useful. I want to make sure that I have a place for myself. I don't want to just linger as the Prince of Wales forever and not have an official role where I'm, you know, I'm constantly being told I'm overstepping my bounds, but I actually don't really have any boundaries yet because I'm not monarch. So for us, shifting that by a few years meant that there was something kind of more holistic about our approach to that character arc for the series. So everything that we, we sort of plot out is a discussion, and our team's massively robust now. I mean, it's five researchers, but we also have an editorial team that is with Peter even more than we are. And so it's, I think, something like 15 of us in a room chatting through the decisions as we plot forward. And sometimes Peter will say, okay, I understand from our source we, you know, this decision was made for someone, but actually I'd like to give that person a little bit more agency because I think that that is... Uh, you know, the report on the decision being made on this person's behalf feels slightly flawed to me. So we're constantly vetting our sources and vetting the material that we're using to guide us in order to stay true to, I think, the characters that, that Peter is, has been portraying all these years. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply.
I wanted to ask about your sources. You, you've mentioned that you've been looking at um, newspapers and, and things like that. And throughout the seasons, a key theme has been the royals' relationship with the press. I'm interested on in your take on on how you've seen that relationship changing through the, s- the sources you've been looking at through the series. So the relationship with the press is fascinating because people think it only gets difficult when the tabloid relationships really start and the War of the Whales is in the 80s. It's actually difficult for the exact opposite reason in the beginning because the way that the UK press operated was there was always weeks of silence on any royal scandal that they simply would not report on in the 40s and 50s and 60s until really, you know, the the whole landscape changed with Murdoch and all of a sudden information to him of any kind uh, was a a democratic right and all of a sudden everything was being exposed. But so in the beginning, for example, with Margaret and Townsend's relationship, we had to go abroad to those newspapers to find out what was being said in the London circles because the newspapers in London had a code of silence. So both extremes exist and there's only really about 10 years, I think, in the 70s where you, you get a nice balance, and then it, the, the scales tip in the 80s. But yeah, you have to know who, you know, particularly for the Diana, Fayed, Charles era, they all had certain mouthpieces that they'd go to. So Richard Kay is, is very open about him, him being Diana's favorite reporter at the Daily Mail. And, and one of the ways we were able to sort of track some of Fayed's team's influence, for example, on the show, on the media, was people at Daily Mail who were not Richard Kay were suddenly getting scoops. And those people, when you track them, had had written previous pro-Fiat articles. So you you have to constantly be skeptical about the information you're receiving until you've vetted the conduit through which that information is being presented to you. And the same goes for biographies. You know, uh, Charles had his favorite biographers and... You know, at certain times they were hired because he had had poor showings in the polls and then and he needed a book to come out that showed that he and Camilla were really true love, for example. So you just have to be very hyper vigilant, I suppose, about um, what you're reading, how it's being presented. And by series four, five and six, we were consistently vetting what we were reading with people who were much closer to the situation than we were. So... We were building up confidential sources who could who could tell us this feels off to me, this but this account feels much more like what I experienced on the inside, and that helped us a lot. Um, we weren't asking them necessarily for new information or kind of tell us the you know the gossip. It was really just to vet what was being pushed out into the public press. That's brilliant. That's really interesting to hear about um, how that process, the, the verification process happens. And I guess I'm interested um, from your point of view, working on other historical film like The Iron Lady or Victoria and Abdul, for example, how the process compares. Are there any unique challenges, which you've already touched on a little, of working with living people, living royals and the Windsor dynasty in particular? What unique challenges that, did that present? Yes, well, I will just say this for the Iron Lady and and Iron Lady and Victoria and Abdul. I was I worked solely with the costume designers, a very good friend of mine. So I was setting her research up rather than researching for script. The bigger problem can isn't really just how how famous they are, how much uh, their relationships to the press in the same way. Sometimes the bigger problem is our collective memory as a public, because. 
we remember things in the moment. So, for example, I think if you asked a few people today how many people died in the car crash that killed Diana and Dodie, they would say two. No, there were three. Because that third person got no coverage whatsoever in the newspapers as, as being a victim, the driver on repol. And what we feel very adamant about is that this is one of the reasons why our show stops in 2005. You need to allow the true story of those moments and the history to emerge so that it's not actually on the ground reporting, right? If we were still doing it in 2023, we would be, we would only have today's newspapers or interviews to help us shape the story. But the Diana crash is such a good example of this. Most of the information for that did not come out until 2008 when Operation Padgett was published. So all of a sudden you could build that entire last summer through very credible testimony of close friends, of the bodyguards, of the members of the Ritz staff who, you know, who went on Dodie's behalf and with Dodie to buy the ring that, that we feature and so on. We needed the, those 10 years of investigations to take us through to, to get to the actual fundamental material with which to build our story. If we had stopped in 1997 and only used resources from then, pretty much what you're stuck with is just emotional responses to a moment in history, because that's all we had at the time, was the grief and the reporting on the grief and the sadness. But nobody had quite figured out truly what had happened yet, what Diana was feeling about Dodie at the time. You know, they hadn't gone on, on the record yet. So I think sometimes collective memory can be a harder thing to deal with when it comes to the monarchy, given that they don't often do interviews themselves. So we're getting most of our information from newspapers, from Vox Pop, you know, from the public at large. But that is not how you attempt to piece together history. Yes, you've already said it. it's a much more rigorous process than that. But I guess for people who aren't understanding of that as you've just laid out that it has that sort of rigor behind it and you're you're taking into account other sources and such i guess what what would you you know say to be to people saying that the, these lives aren't aren't fair game because we don't know it sounds very much like we do but i'm interested in your take on that this is a very personal take for me i believe that in any democracy which we have even though it is a constitutional monarchy our government functions as a as an electoral democracy we have the right to interrogate our are public institutions. The monarchy is a public institution. That's simply how I feel about it. You know, I find it interesting that nobody has a problem with us depicting Harold Wilson or John Major or Margaret Thatcher, but we, you know, the, the, the people within the royal family are untouchable. I just simply don't believe that's true. If these two spheres of power are meant to function together, then we have to treat them equally. That's how I feel about it. And now I feel a great responsibility to understanding those people as well as I possibly can. Where that is taken is not up to me because I'm not the writer of the show. But it's my job to feel that I've left an impression of a person that is as rooted in history as possible. And, and it's hard because it's, it's not just history, right? It's perspective. It's rooted in as much information as we can gather, vet, and confidently put forward as I can. And... I just disagree that this is something that should be untouchable because I simply believe that if it's part of how government functions, then we should be able to interrogate it. 
On that note of, of government, um, it, the show obviously takes us into Downing Street many, many times throughout the series. I wonder if you can give us that perspective of it's another world that viewers don't often get to see, how you go about constructing behind closed doors there. That is great. I mean, I love, I, I do have a soft spot for Downing Street because I, I just find the decisions made that have actually changed the trajectory of the course of my life or the, where I live, you know, I, I just will inevitably find that slightly more interesting. But with that, there's, I mean, the National Archives have cabinet minutes. We know exactly what was covered in every single day, every single cabinet meeting, and every emergency cabinet meeting. You know, the agendas are available to read. So that helps. Lots of great people who worked either as um, cabinet members or as uh, civil servants within Downing Street have written memoirs. And many of those are actually diaries. So that's, that is often slightly more trustworthy because you're not asking someone 30 years later to recount their time at Downing Street. They've gone home that night and they've written what's happened. So obviously in the Blair years, Alistair Campbell took unbelievable notes about every single day that he was at Downing Street. But you have Bernard Donahue, you have lots of other people from the Wilson years. Um, we got into that particularly in the Wilson years. You can imagine series one. And into two, a lot of people were not alive to talk to us. But by series three, we were starting to be able to, to meet more people. And a lot of PMs write their own autobiographies. There are a lot of very well-vetted biographies written by others, uh, by very good historians. And so that's a little bit easier to piece together because you're able to... People are a bit more open about these experiences. And because the press has less... There's less kind of a gossipy nature to how the reporting of government functions. <laughs> so you might say, okay, well, we know The Guardian will always slightly slant this way or The Daily Telegraph will slant this way. That's fine. You're aware of those biases to a certain extent. But you're, I think you're able to trust, you know, this many new items have been presented for the budget. Like, that kind of stuff is probably going to be pretty benign and, and universally reported. So it's just a very different thing. And it was nice to have that balance because you're able to to spend more time speculating and trying to piece together these more enigmatic characters at, at Buckingham Palace and then also sift through immense information that had already been vetted about the characters of Number 10. And the variety of characters that you choose to portray or that, um, that the creators choose to portray on screen is what has allowed so many people to connect and enjoy so many aspects of The Crown. I wonder if there's a favourite of yours that you can take us into that has made it onto screen that you'd love discerning viewers to, to notice. I still think, what, I think if I had to choose a favourite episode, it would be when Charles goes to Aberystwyth and his relationship with his lecturer, Teddy Millward. I love it when we can draw, you know, a spotlight on someone who had such, what seems to me, such an effect on our character, but you would never, ever have known to look for him. And that episode started, it was a much broader episode about the dangers that Charles was facing, because that was the part of the, mil you know, he was at the heart of this Welsh militant campaign, bombing campaign. I mean, there were even accounts that he had, was given a bulletproof vest wear underneath his investiture uniform because the threat of assassination was so high. And we start out going, well, that's dramatic, like any other show would do. Well, look at that. They're going to kill him. Oh, my gosh. And, and he's sort of been put up as this lamb to slaughter, you know, by the government and by his mother because they need to make sure that, that the Welsh nationalist movement is met head on in this year where he becomes Prince of Wales. 
And then we got more and more into this relationship with Teddy Millward, and we managed to speak to his daughter, and we managed to then get to Teddy, who was very ill at the time, so we didn't speak to him directly. We always used his daughter as a conduit. She was wonderful. And we realized, actually, no, this is not about the outside political forces on Charles. Let's just make this about Charles's evolution, given that he's now entered a space that he never thought he'd be in, under the tutelage of someone who he'd never has had a dynamic like that with before, who expects something very different from him than his other tutors, you know, Gordon of Cambridge might. And it just became such a simple story about this man, you know, this young man's kind of growth and awakening. And those scenes where he's with Teddy Millward's family and you realize this is the family life he wished he had had, that kind of closeness, and it highlights the sense of isolation he has back home. I just think it was such a simple, beautiful story, and we could never have gotten anywhere near that deep, you know, that depth without Teddy Millward's family's help. There were a few like that. I think um, The Altringhams was also another really wonderful one where we, we worked a lot with his wife and his son. And I do love the Apollo 11 mission and the new Dean of Windsor who helps Philip with a bit of a midlife crisis moment in his life. Um, so those sort of supporting characters where you realize they had immense impact on, the, on our principal characters were just a joy, to always a joy to discover. It's so fascinating to hear about those real testimonies and how they've shaped these episodes, which I, I've really enjoyed as a viewer too. I, I wonder if there are any that have maybe been left on the cutting room floor that you could share with us, if you're if you're able to say that maybe you found a historical detail that sort of captured your interest, but for whatever reason just couldn't make it into the drama. I mean, there were a few, you know, and I, and and that Welsh the the Welsh University one is because we had a whole different real focus of that episode. We had to sort of say goodbye to a lot of the Welsh militancy, which we thought was actually fascinating. Tony Armstrong Jones had a quite an important role to play in the investiture, and so we had some nice scenes with him and Charles where he comes in as this sort of slightly more tactile and modern uncle, you know, figure to him. Those, it just didn't really make sense to keep in the story that we had chosen to tell by the end. We love learnt knowing every single detail before we shoot anything. And so there are lots of small things that you will never see on screen that don't make that don't make the final edit or just it get kind of brushed past in, in a scene. And we're like, oh, that took us four hours to learn which medals, you know, the tribal leaders wore when Elizabeth landed in Kenya in 1952. You know, I remember doing that research and I, I, I wanted to source the real one. So I uh, I was trying to figure out how this religious leader of Zanzibar got X medal. And then, you know, by the time you actually film it, it's the flash in the pan kind of moment. But it, I think that level of detail, which having such a robust team allows, just gave a lot of great confidence to the actors and the directors to also improvise on you know, on set if they felt like they needed to have a bit of an introduction to a scene or a bit of a, more of a conclusion than what's on the page. I remember... We had this. We have this amazing etiquette advisor, David Rankin Hunt, who's been with us since series one, and we just had a scene where Charles was eating asparagus at Highgrove with Anne, and he stopped and said, "Posh people don't eat with their f knives and forks. They don't eat asparagus like that. You pick it up with your fingers." And we just we couldn't believe that that was the you know the better, more polished way to eat food was with your hands. And he said, "I don't know what it is, but that's the rule." So we had we reset. And we shot it with Dom, you know, 
picking up the asparagus with his fingers. So it's just a kind of, it's nice to have so many voices be able to chime in with their experience to make sure we're always getting it right. Because I don't think I would have been able to look up how do posh people eat asparagus in 1992 and have felt confident going in, you know, that I could give that advice. Sure. Well, it's been so wonderful hearing from you about your expertise, about the, the the historical research that goes into such such a huge historical show. And I wonder if um, I can ask uh, for a final thought, perhaps, on the role of history on screen in 2023, because it always seems to be up for debate. Um, these these phrases like historical accuracy and interpretations on screen, they are always unpicked. And I wonder if we can get your sense of history on screen and its place in 2023, what you think its importance is. Well, I will, I'm going to obviously be biased about this. I, you know, even now as I've transitioned into writing, I pretty much write primarily historical shows. And I think it, if when done correctly, when you choose a topic that really addresses a moment we are in currently, I think it's incredibly elucidating. And it's an area of almost like media that we actually need as a separate entity. It's not journalism. It is not you know, on the ground reporting. It's actually how we digest our past to help us understand where we're going or a moment we're currently in. I think it's, I think it's really important to be able to have creative freedom when you're doing historical drama, because I fundamentally think that in the same way that Hilary Mantel would tell you in the Wreath Lectures, which if you're, I'm sure as a history podcast, you will have told people to go and listen to those. You know, history is, has long been, a very about a very small percentage of the population written by an even smaller po- percentage of the population and i do believe history is a very hard construct to feel concrete i actually think it's just about aligning perspectives to try to build a picture so i think it's a lot more subjective than people are willing to acknowledge obviously yes the world war you know world war 2 ended on the 8th of may for for europe 1945 there are there are things that are concrete but how victorious britain felt or how the individuals in the war felt all of that is perspective so you're using their perspectives to build a sense of a kind of more concrete history so for me shows like this which i wish were taken less as a documentary and more as just a way to help us process the people in our lives who we actually don't know very much about but are in positions of power and how they've trying to humanize them to a certain extent try to humanize our history i wish it were just taken more as as an art i suppose and i i just think it's incredibly important as its own entity Hilary Mantel could have made some creative license decisions that don't register to us because we don't know much about the period of Henry VIII. We risk more moving into this period, but I think that that risk is is worth exploring, you know, is worth taking because it helps us understand our relationship with the media and the press, how the public needs to interact with an elected government, but also an unelected government, uh, you know, sphere of power. It, it helps us process. That was Annie Solzberger. Seasons one to six of The Crown are available to view on Netflix. You can find out more on the real history of the series at historyextra.com slash the crown. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. 
This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.